great liturgy for us this morning. Isn't the name of Jesus all we need? I know it's all I need this morning. Have you ever walked into a conversation and you thought uh, that you didn't have a clue what was being talked about because you missed the context? You know, somebody's saying something or talking about something and it doesn't really, doesn't really make sense to you. And uh, it's because you missed the context. Or maybe you received a message or you heard something shared and you're just confused. As soon as it starts, you're like, what are they talking about? Well, I feel like this is a regular occurrence in my house. And um, my wife is downstairs serving in pals this morning, so I can say these things and just get away with it, I guess. But Rachel and I both majored in communication at the University of South Carolina. And sometimes I wonder if maybe we majored in communication in two different languages. But nonetheless, we have to work at communication a good bit. And um, fairly often, Rachel will be thinking something. And about halfway through her thought, she'll start talking out loud. And it's as if she thinks I can hear her thoughts and know what she's talking about. And so all of a sudden, she'll just, out of nowhere for me, there'll be this question. And it'll be something like, so do you think I should get it? And I have no clue how to answer. And I think, is this a test? You know, because I do have a habit sometimes of tuning people out. And I'm like, have I tuned her out here? What did she say? And so I'm racking through my brain. And so I try to come up with questions that like, well, I don't know. What do you think? You know, just to see what I can learn. And finally, it's, babe, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. And she has to go all the way back to the beginning, give me the context, which started in her mind. And I'm, oh, well, why didn't you say that to begin with? Well, understanding context is a critical component for fully grasping a message. And sometimes I think we don't grasp biblical meaning because we don't quite understand the context. Today I want us to turn to the book of 2 Timothy. We're going to be in chapter 2. And this is a letter that Paul has written to his protege in ministry, Timothy. And Timothy is, uh, has been placed as in a position of leadership at the church at Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is a, a significant church in Asia, I mean, a significant city in Asia Minor. And so that means that this is a pretty important church in the region. And um, Paul is writing to Timothy as the leader of this church, and he's writing him from a dungeon in Rome. Paul has been placed in a dungeon. It's not quite like the jail cells or the prisons that we imagine. Um, some descriptions say it would be like, a hole with a ladder that's lowered down to gain access. And so you can imagine it's got to be dark, damp, depressing. And so here's Paul in this dungeon, lonely, probably exhausted because we know the things that Paul has gone, gone through. Plus, we know he's nearing the end of his life. And so surely it's there in the dungeon that he writes with tears and um, with a sense of urgency and to get this letter drafted because he wanted to ensure the stability of this church and to encourage Timothy, to strengthen him for the task that lies ahead. So with that in mind, I'm going to read to you 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-10. through 10. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 
No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. Paul charges Timothy to stand in contrast to some um, folks in some churches who have abandoned the faith and have drifted from what it means to be a church. And he tells them to do this by being committed to certain values that uh, as a dedicated Christian leader. And so the church today, I believe, needs to stand in contrast from those who have drifted. So how do we do that? How can we today, in our day and age, stand in contrast to those who are drifting from biblical truth? Well, Paul delivers to Timothy four verbs in this passage that explain how he should conduct himself. And I think it's applicable for you and I in this church this morning. We are to stand in contrast as the church by being strong in grace, entrusting truth to more people, suffering hardship, And remembering Jesus. So first let's look at this verse 1. And this charge to stand in contrast as the church by being strong in grace. So Paul writes, you therefore. And he's referring back to chapter 1. That's the context. So in in light of chapter 1. And what he talks about in chapter 1. At least at the close of it. Is he said there are folks in Asia who are abandoning me who are turning away from the faith. In fact, it says, you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me. And so that's what Paul is pointing out here. And then he says, but you, therefore, be different from that. And then he writes as uh, with the affection of a father here in chapter 2. And he, uh, in tenderness, he says, but as for you, my son, don't drift. These other leaders in Asia, these churches in Asia, they have drifted. They have turned to apostasy. Don't do it. Timothy, do not do it. He says, rather, be strong. And the meaning of that be strong comes across like keep being empowered. Because we all know what it's like to go through life and then be rocked by circumstances or pressures from the outside, and be challenged to be, and and you almost feel like giving in. But he's saying, no, you be strong. When you get worn out, you keep being strong. You keep being empowered. It's kind of the, uh, the intent that Paul is writing with here. But what is to be the source of his strength? Is it supposed to be uh, his talents and his abilities? A lot of us try to depend on that. You know, we say, well, I'll just be strong because I'm good enough for that. Or maybe in his own uh, his own righteousness, Is that what he's supposed to be strong in? Well, the New American Commentary says, The quarry from which Timothy was to mine such strength was God's grace made available in Christ Jesus. Paul says, be strong uh, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Timothy is to be strong 
in grace. The grace was not only there to save him, but it was also there to empower him to live and to lead. When I was in high school, my parents took my brother and I uh, to the Grand Canyon. And I know many of you have been there and you've stood there at the edge and looked out and been able to contemplate God's vast creation, his unbelievable ability, and just how creative he is. We also went to Sedona, Arizona, where you feel like you're down in the canyon. And what you do is you see the effects of erosion, of what happens over a period of time when these powerful elements just take their toll on the natural landscape. Well, I'm convinced that over a period of time, the local church may begin to erode because of the effects and the, the power of culture and the power of sin causing the local church to drift away from biblical truth and the distinctives that really make the church, that set it apart, that make it what it is. It happened in the early church. That's what Paul's talking about. This is happening. He even names people. I always wondered what it would be like that for, for all of history now, these two guys are named as the ones who abandoned him. It's like, yeah, they got written down. We still talk about them, you know. Way to go, you abandoned Paul. But these people, they, they, they left him. They turned to apostasy. It happened there in the early church. As the pastor of First Baptist Church, I preach the Bible because it is the inerrant, infallible word of God. And I could bring to you all the best advice in the world for living and for how to stand firm, but it will always be mixed with error. But when we turn to the truth of God's word, we can depend on it for being totally true and totally trustworthy. And so that's why we turn here. Now, a church begins to drift when it takes a low view of the scriptures. A church begins to drift when it starts to compromise about who Jesus is and what he's done and what he said. So I want you to notice here, Paul says to be strong in grace. For us to be useful for God, we must be strong in grace. That's the way that it works. To be effective as a church, we must be strong in grace. I want you to think about who's writing this letter. It's Paul. Paul, this apostle, this, this prisoner, lonely prisoner in Rome, used to be Saul. He was a legalistic Pharisee. The thrust of his life was to ensure that Christianity gets wiped out. And then all of a sudden, Jesus, in his grace, interrupts him, blinds him, and he calls Paul, away from this legalistic Pharisee way of living, to be a messenger of grace. That's what he does to him. Grace is unmerited favor. It's something we cannot earn. It's what God gives us even though we don't deserve it. It's goodness that cannot be worked towards. Paul didn't have a chance to live a life good enough to earn grace. And neither can you or I. We need God's unmerited favor. We need his grace. And grace is always unearned. But how, uh, how many people today in our churches are trapped in legalism? Hear me out. There is no strength in our self-righteousness. There's no strength there. Paul had attempted that to the greatest degree possible. He wore the right clothes. He uh, celebrated all the different feasts. He observed the different rituals. Um, he kept the letter of the law, and then he enforced it on other people. And in the end, he says, it was all a loss. I thought I was gaining, but it was all loss. 
because he was depending on self-righteousness. But we do the same thing in our own lives. Some of you walk in here today wearing the lens of legalism. You're hard on yourself, and you're harder on everyone else too. You think, I can't believe they would do that. If they were a better Christian, they would do these things. Well, the church of Jesus Christ does not need legalism because there's no strength in it. There's only strength in grace. Recognition that all of us on our best day and our worst day are desperately in need of forgiveness that we could not work towards on our own. Legalism really is an indicator of a shallow understanding of Jesus's, the depths of Jesus' grace. Now, grace does not mean anything goes. I think uh, all of a sudden, I feel like I need to explain this because you're like, oh, what's he saying now? All of a sudden, he's bringing grace in the church. Everybody will get, end up doing what they want to do. But that's not what grace is. It does not mean we overlook sin. Grace does not mean that we accept ungodliness and approve of it. Grace really motivates our behavior. Grace motivates our behavior much better than legalism ever can. So don't miss that. We're to be strong in grace, and that grace will propel us towards godliness. In fact, Paul writes in Titus 2, verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. So grace brings the salvation. And then in Titus 2, 12, he says, This grace of God instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. When grace appears, it strengthens us to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Legalism can't do that, but grace can, and it does. Can I just say to you today, as the church here, our world is hungry for a message of grace. Think about it. If people cannot find grace in the church, where are they going to go? Everywhere they go, they have to perform. And when we expect them to do the same thing, we're only shackle, putting shackles on them. But the church is to be strong in grace. Imagine the impact of our church and our community if every believer who was here took the opportunity every week to share the gospel with at least one person. One person who expresses a need. Just one person a week. Now I know that you're thinking, wow, that's pretty overwhelming. I can't believe you'd ask us to do that. That's a pretty big indictment against the church if that's how we feel. But this is not legalistic. I'm not saying add a checkbox to your week. I'm just saying if we recognize how good God is and the grace and how he's rescued us and how we have the answer to the world, what if we just went out, all of us, and every week just took at least one opportunity, one conversation to share with people the hope that is in Jesus and the fact that they, they don't have to perform, they don't have to work, but God is gracious and will give them eternal life and forgiveness of their sins. Be strong in grace. Be a messenger of grace this week. That's, that's the, a great application of this passage. The church is to distinguish itself by being strong in grace. And then Paul uses another verb here in writing to Timothy about the church. So he says the church is to stand in contrast to those other churches that are drifting by entrusting truth to more people. Look at verse 2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. When Paul writes these things, he means the foundational truths of the gospel. And he's telling Timothy, Timothy, entrust these foundational truths to faithful men. Now, faithful men is not a status symbol. These are just people he could depend on, reliable people. 
People who will not drift from the word of God. But not only that, people who will not just take it and hoard it for themselves. He says, you give this to people who will then take it and pass it on. Passing it on is the key to the Christian faith. That's why we're here today. And you see it so perfectly illustrated in this passage. Saul, God interrupted his life. Jesus called him out and gave the baton to him to carry the gospel to the nations. And what does he do? Takes the baton, he passes it to Timothy. And now he says, Timothy, you take the baton and you pass it to uh, faithful men. You entrust it to them. And then those faithful men, in the verse it says, and then you, they can pass it to others also. And then the good news is, you and I sitting here today, watching by television, or, or joining us by uh, the web, somewhere along the way, somebody's passed the baton to you. And that means it's in your hand. What are you going to do with the baton? What are we going to do with the baton in our generation? In order to be effective, relevant, and obedient, this church must become faithful to entrust truth to more people who then can pass it on. We're not given the grace of Jesus to hoard. We're not given it to just turn and look at ourselves and say, look at me. That's not why we have the grace. Paul is an example for us today. He gave his very life, so much of it, to Timothy. Timothy received the foundational truths of the gospel and he passed it on. And that's evidence because we're here today. It's our responsibility, yours and mine, in this generation to continue to entrust people with the gospel. A church is not just a gathering of people who come and sit here and listen to one person preach. Isn't that good news? That's not what you're here for, okay? Hopefully I'm being faithful to proclaim truths to you. I'm attempting, though, to pass the baton. I'm not saying you just bring them in here so they can hear me. I'm handing the baton to you, and I'm saying, what are you going to do with it? Let me tell you how to entrust truth to more people. Of course, we do it through preaching and teaching. Uh, but it's also done through modeling and mentoring. The way that we live our lives can essentially pass the baton. We're also called to go and to share. But there's even opportunities here for you. My hope is to see discipleship at First Baptist Church become intentional toward building into the lives and the families of the people that are here not just making sure you can pass the test, but something so that you're holding on to it and you know how to pass it on. And the richness of this church is that it's so diverse. And so we have older men and older women who can mentor and model and entrust it to younger men and younger women. And let me get to the bottom line here. This is what I want to come to, okay? We need you. The last thing we need you to do is for everyone to walk in here, sit down, take notes, Walk out, return the next week, sit down, take notes, walk out, return, and just keep doing that until Jesus himself returns. That, that's not what you're called to do here, okay? What can you do? Well, I'll tell you this. We need teachers. We need teachers who invest in the lives of our children down the Children's Center every week. We need them discipling our middle school and high school students. We need you mentoring these college students. We need you teaching and investing in the lives of your peers and other adults. That's what you can do. So if you call this church home, you ought to find a place of service. The Christian life is not about being served, but it's about serving. So where is it? Where's God calling you to serve today? Where can you begin to entrust truth in more people? It's critical the church stand in contrast in the drifting and eroding, uh, to the drifting and eroding church 
by being strong in grace and by entrusting truth to more people. And a third verb that Paul uses is not so attractive. Kind of jumps off the page at you. Verse 3 he says, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Well, we all know we experience that, but nobody really wants to apply that, right? The church must stand in contrast by suffering hardship. You know, as we read this verse, you can uh, picture Paul sitting in the dungeon in Rome, suffering for the cause of Christ. He says that I'm imprisoned here as a criminal for passing the baton, essentially. His ministry was marked by just dramatic suffering. So he's writing and he's saying, suffer with me. Goodspeed translate the phrase, tr- translates this free, uh, phrase, suffer hardship with me. He, he translates it this way. Join the ranks of those who bear suffering. Our king, our captain is calling us to join the ranks of those who bear suffering. Now this is so counter to the American dream in our generation. Uh, we live in a, a day and age when gain is expected to come without suffering. Frankly, it's expected to come without any sort of work. We just deserve it, right? But that's not how it works. It takes blood, sweat, and tears to achieve anything that's worthwhile. The Christian life is the same thing. Now, we can talk about the prosperity gospel, but Paul, Paul is suffering after living a very faithful life for the Lord Jesus and the purpose of the advance of his kingdom. Paul suffered for the sake of the gospel. Let me tie this into the last point I made. See, I believe that the business of entrusting the gospel to faithful men means that we often have to suffer. That's part of it. Sometimes you suffer by being a little bit embarrassed or by putting your reputation on the line. But that's what we do. In order to clarify, Paul suggests three illustrations here. In uh, verse 4, he talks about a soldier. Now, the soldier... Is, uh, is uh, characterized as, devo- as being devoted. When the captain calls, he doesn't say, oh, I got all this other stuff going on. What does he do? He lines up. He's out, right? What's well, the same thing in the Christian life? We suffer by being like this soldier who is devoted to our captain. When he calls us to go, we say, yes, sir, and we move. And then he also talks about an athlete here. And the athlete is characterized really by honesty. I mean, he's uh, determined to win the race, right? But the only way to win the race is to run the track that's in front of you, to run the path that's in front of you. You can't just choose your own path, choose your own way. It's you run, you play by the rules. So it's honesty. The third thing is, is this farmer. He says, you suffer by being like the farmer. What does it take for the farmer to get crops to grow? Hard work, sweat, investment of time. And he says, it's the same thing for you. Not an investment of time one hour a week but an investment of time over where you're working and laboring in the vineyard. That's what uh, Paul is speaking about here. Let me steer this ship in a different way real quick for us. We are to suffer for the gospel, but if we were honest, we would admit that most of us walk in here today with a deep sense of suffering. Everybody hurts. And for some reason, though, we expect people to come into church and to cover up their pain as if it's shameful. That's what we expect people to do. Put on the smile. Act like you're blessed and happy to be dealing with this rather than being vulnerable, rather than being authentic. The church has to make room for authentic living. If people cannot come here and be vulnerable, then where are they supposed to go? It's a way for us to stand in contrast from the drifting church 
that's left the Word of God and says people are supposed to come without problems. No, we believe that people have problems, but Jesus is the answer for them. So everybody hurts. So what does Paul say? He says, suffer with me. There's a richness in that idea. That we don't suffer alone, we suffer with. When one hurts, we all hurt. Uh, today I'm mindful of some folks that are dear to me that are just suffering in significant ways. And I want to bear the burden with them. On Thursday, my wife called me and said, uh, Wes, Amelia, it wasn't this calm, okay, but I won't say it quite like she did. Amelia has bumped her chin or something like that. We're going to have to head to the hospital. And she's very frantic about the whole thing. And uh, I go to the hospital. I'm not sure if I went for Amelia or Rachel, but I went. We went to the children's hospital on Thursday, went down there. And when you see your child in pain, it is just the worst feeling. I remember just wanting to squeeze her so tight that I could transfer it onto me. I didn't want her to suffer. Let me suffer with you. I want to be the one suffering here, you know. And so, uh, but I, I, that's what it's like. I hurt with her. Just on a side note, it did turn out that she's an incredible patient. And the uh, Palmetto Health uh, Children's Hospital staff are just have imp in incredible patient care. Um, and I'll tell you the reason why. She got two stitches. And went right before we left, she said, Daddy, this has been super, 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 super fun, is what she said. <laughs> so if Palmetto Health Children's Hospital is looking for a good commercial... My, wife, my daughter with her two stitches says it's fun. So, in the world system, when testing comes, folks scatter. That's what happens. It's an every man for himself kind of world. But in the church, grace should pull us together. That's what it should do. Do you know somebody hurting today? Maybe it's you. You cannot suffer hardship with someone from a distance. I think sometimes we've just turned to technology and we've just said, I'm praying for you. You know how you suffer with somebody? Take showing up and bringing them a casserole, knocking on their door, placing the phone call. That's how the church distinguishes itself, by suffering hardship with folks. Finally, Paul offers a fourth verb here while instructing Timothy. He says at the beginning of verse 8, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. We are to stand in contrast by remembering Jesus, this resurrected Savior who had interrupted uh, Paul's trip down the road to Damascus, he met the qualifications for the Messiah because he's a descendant of David. But he is not some dead figurehead. He's not just somebody we memorialize. No, he is our resurrected living Savior. And you remember him by putting our thoughts on Jesus and his resurrection. It helps in a couple of ways. Number one, we remember he suffered too. Therefore, I can. He faced fear and loneliness. And I can too. Second, his resurrection provides us hope and courage because we're promised the same resurrection. Uh, yesterday, my world was rocked as a friend of ours uh, who'd been suffering through a very significant trial, a uh, physical trial, was forced to enter something altogether different and altogether worse. And it was just causing me physical pain, praying for this dear friend of ours. And it caused me to think, Jesus, would you just come on back? Come on back. We need you to come back and just set things right. The suffering is just too real. God, would you come back? The resurrection of Jesus is a promise that someday we will gather around the wedding feast, uh, the banquet of the Lamb, and we will feast there, and I love to eat, and we will feast, and we will not weep. And I look forward to that. Remember, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's asking him to be strong and endure, while at the same time he's facing all kinds of, of suffering in this dungeon. 
So Paul tells Timothy, stand in contrast by being strong in grace and trusting truth to more people, suffering hardship, and remembering Jesus. So I'm going to conclude by just pointing to verse 10. Paul says, in light of the fact that the gospel is not in chains, that's what he says at the end of 9, I endure all things for the sake of God's glorious church. I endure. That means I abide under. I put up with all kinds of mess for the sake of the church. You know, I couldn't be more excited than to be pastor of First Baptist Church. I look with great hope towards the future. I smile at what God's doing and will do. But I know that it's not just going to be a bed of roses, that there will be suffering, there will be frustrating moments. And Paul writes that he willingly endures, and I must, and you must too. We endure every difficulty. We hold together. We don't whine. We don't quit. We maintain our integrity. We don't cave into the culture. We don't soften on our position about the Word of God and about Jesus. But we stick to it, and we take the baton in our generation, and we pass it on. That's what we're to do. That's what a church that stands in contrast does. Believer, will you commit to endure today? Or if you're a seeker seeking Jesus, today would you hear him calling you? Would you come follow him today? Our Father and God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather, to worship, and then to hear the word of God proclaimed. Now, Lord, don't let us just sit here and take notes and feel encouraged or discouraged, but Lord, help us to do something with it. God, I pray that you'll just speak to each heart today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to have an invitation. Many of you need to make a decision. Some of it, it's to maybe to live in a different way. Maybe some of you, it's to endure through the frustrations that you're experiencing. Some of you may need to walk the aisle and join the church and say, I'm ready to lay down roots. Some of you may need to surrender to Jesus. So I'm going to invite everybody to stand. The choir's going to sing. As the music, as the music plays, you respond.